Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Courtney Sexton. Uh, she's at George Washington University. She's a PhD student. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, dogs, facial phenotypes, and the uh, dog behavior. And uh, I told her it's rare that I, I get someone that's knowledgeable about dogs in the podcast. So I'm looking forward to it. So Courtney, thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. And I always love talking dogs. So uh, tell me about your uh, research. What is it about? Um, well, I am interested in what we can learn from other species about our own and also how to better interact with those other species that are part of our social uh, realm. <laughs> so dogs are kind of a prime candidate. Um, and I'm particularly interested in the evolution of nonverbal communication which there's actually a lot that, that dogs and, and humans or other primates have, in, have shared in, in that evolutionary process. Yeah, I have three dogs myself. And, you know, they, they always have, sometimes they look very sad and you know, <laughs> they have all these weird expressions. And, and they go through this cycle every day. They'll, they'll play with each other and then they'll be like asleep. And then they'll eat and then they'll play with each other and then they'll go to sleep like endlessly throughout the day. And that's just one of the things I see from them, you know. Great. Well, you know, they, dogs are very attuned to our routines too. And, you know, with everyone being home right now, I think it's, it's shaken everybody up, not just the people. And so they're probably wondering why you're hanging around as much as you are <laughs> and not, not just coming in at dinner time. Um, yeah. Yeah. But well, in terms of uh, nonverbal communication though, like, yeah, I, I can see that um, they're signaling each other, but I can't always see why. I know sometimes like, you know, maybe the tail is raised or maybe there's body language, but it just seems like there's a lot that I'm missing when I observe the dogs, like no matter how closely I look at them, you know? Sure. Communication. Absolutely. So there are all different kinds of and forms of communication throughout the animal kingdom that both humans and dogs and other animals use. Um, and with, with other animals, though, those are usually reserved for communicating with each other, right? So you may not necessarily be able to interpret or understand what you're seeing your dogs do when they're talking to each other. Um, but dogs are unique in that they've also adapted to be able to communicate with people um, because they've been around for about you know, roughly 30,000 years, dogs and people have been cohabitating. Um, they were the first animals to be domesticated. And part of that is, um, you know, we had similar social structures during that time. Our, our Paleolithic relatives at that time um, were hunter-gatherers. They were moving from place to place. But they also had uh, they, they had a paired mating systems, and these were similar to the wolves and kind of would-be dogs that were also around at that time. Um, so I think even back then, there, there was something of a kindred spirit between the two 
the two species. Um, and dogs have just gotten a lot better at interpreting our expressions than we have theirs. <laughs> um, we're, there, there have been a couple of studies that have shown where we're still not real great at understanding either their facial expressions or even, you know, one of the things I hear a lot when I'm doing outreach work is, you know, I'll be at a dog park and people will have two dogs and they'll say, oh, well, they're wagging their tails. <laughs> and my, my ears always prick up because I'm like, oh my goodness, not all tail wagging the same thing. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, so. Yeah, I've noticed, um, like one of my, well, he's passed away, but one of my old dogs, when he was happy, he would wag his tail one way. And then when he was irritated, he would wag it slower and in a different pattern. Absolutely. It seems like they have, I don't know, I guess multiple different tail wagging patterns and speeds and everything. Absolutely. And it's usually a combination of, you know, not so wide, but maybe the way their mouth is, their ears are ripped, their heart are down, um, or any number of body language things. Um, but what's really cool, again, is that Unlike most other species, dogs will make eye contact because they've figured out that a lot of the information they need to get comes from looking at our faces. Um, and we do that too. We just don't realize it because we have the added tool of a spoken language to use for this part. Um, so while we may not always be super conscious of the faces we're making or reading in others, that's giving us a lot of information. And the dogs are keen on because while they can understand lots of um, human words, uh, it was Rico or Chaser uh, learned over a thousand words in English language. A dog, uh, they can't, oh wow, yeah, they but they can't obviously produce them back to us, <laughs> so uh, they they have to find other ways to tell us what they want to need. I wonder if um, people that are born deaf would be good to work with dogs they have to look to express themselves and all that. I wonder if they would have some insight into, uh, you know, dogs more than regular people. Yeah, it, it very well could be, you know, and some of the early language studies, of course, involving ASL or other forms which to primates, um, so language learning apes that are starting to pass away now, actually, just old age, and we're interested in looking at their brains because uh, we see if those brains have developed differently than in a non-language ape. And so similarly, lots of people um, train dogs, working dogs, using using signal commands as opposed to, to vocal or verbal commands. There's lots of these forms of work, whether it's search or rescue, and rescue or detection, the animal's covering a lot of ground and they may not be within hearing distance of their their human um, worker. Yeah, no, that's true. And yeah, I've noticed like with sit, you know, for us, it's a physical command. The word doesn't really seem to matter. Mm -hmm. Like I've tried it with just the word, but when I do the hand motion, like I lift my hand in a way, you know, with the palm up, then, then they know that they sit quickly. But yeah, it's just interesting, the different types of communication. For sure. <laughs> my dog right now is, is chasing a fly in the window. So <laughs> I don't know what oh, yeah. other than his prey drive is high at the moment. <laughs> yeah, they love to do that. I had one dog that used to eat the flies. My yeah. wife called them sky raisins. He loved them. Exactly. I've, I've heard that before too. It's good protein, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, why not? So, so what, um, what are you studying specifically about dogs? Like what forms of communication uh, you know, are you looking at? 
Sure, yeah. So I am, as you may have guessed, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in facial communication and facial expression. Um, it comes from some previous, I'm, I'm a PhD student, so I'm still at the beginning of my research career. Um, and so the studies that I'm working on right now come from some previous work in both dogs and primates that tell us about facial communication. Um, and just to back up a little bit, actually, kind of the impetus really for this is, again, as, a, as an anthropologist, um, asking that big question, what does it mean to be human, can be approached in a bunch of different ways. A lot of the scientists I work with are traditional archaeologists or paleoarchaeologists or forensic scientists are looking at bones and, and humisters. Others are looking at at differences in, in neuronal difference in brain differences, others are genetic differences. For me, I'm interested in the social aspects of, of what makes us human. And one of those kind of very uh, key things that, that people will always point to is language. Our capacity for this complex language system makes us really special. Um, but again, having been around dogs a lot <laughs> um, and, and seen how well they're able to uh, communicate, it, it really makes me wonder if language is, is the thing that, that sets us apart or if we are set apart. Um, and so to get into the facial expression side of things, we know from some work with um, Dr. Kaminsky and Dr. Waller uh, that uh, dogs respond with increased types and amounts of facial expressions to attentive humans. And there's thunder jumping on a chair. <laughs> so um, uh, if you were to just stand in a room facing your dog, or that dog would, be, would make more expressions back to you than if you were with your back turned to them. And this happened regardless of whether or not food was present. Um, so it really did seem to be it was something with they were making eye contact and looking at your face and knowing that you were going to be trying to read their face too for information. Uh, yeah, so that was a really uh, awesome kind of landmark study from a couple of years ago. And then at the same time, we, um, we've done some work on anatomy with the, fa the actual facial muscles in relation to behavior in dogs and then comparing them with their other canid or um, dog-like relatives, like wolves and coyotes and foxes, for example. Um, and we, we, there's some evidence that suggests that dogs may have developed some unique muscles or honed some unique muscles, especially around their eyes, that helps them to, to make more overt expressions in that area um, than do. I've noticed like, um, you know, sometimes I, get, I can tell like, you know, when the dog's agitated, it, let me see if I can describe this. It's, it looks surprised, like it's, their eyes will widen, their, mm -hmm. you know, the muscles above their eyes will kind of, move, their face will draw back, but it's not, uh, it's not surprised that something else, it's like a heightened, heightened attention you know, I, I just noticed their faces can do a lot of strange things. They, de they definitely can. And there's actually, you know, in humans, there is, um, there are, there's this chart you may have seen or some may be familiar with, and it's kind of the universal emotion expressions as like happy, angry, disgusted. And these are really hardwired across cultures. So 
anyone, regardless of their language, could look at, at a face and, and kind of have an idea of what that person's expression was on these like basic ones. And there are analogs or comparable expressions for dogs. Um, and you'll see fear, you know, the, the, their eye kind of pulls back into what we call a whale eye. So it's wide, but to the side. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Show, yeah, and that's a that's a unique thing too. Um, most other animals, aside from humans, don't have uh, white sclera, so that area around the pupil, um, and that's really important for seeing where your eyes are moving, which would help you be able to indicate to someone what you're looking at or what you want to show them, right? Um, so most of them, yeah, I noticed like like dogs will kind of look, give you like side eye, like when they're when they're <laughs> upset, they give you the side eye and they'll you know they'll growl and do other stuff too. But yeah, you're, you're right, their eyes open up more. They they don't look directly, but they look at you from the side. And they go, uh, you know, you see, oh no. Yeah, and we they, we can see some of their sclera more than more than others. Um, but yeah, so then, you know, in addition to that, we, again, we, we do a lot of work um, comparing dogs to primates because we're primates and we have some good uh, data from other primate species because they're obviously really similar to people, right? Um, and for, our, you know, there's great diversity across primate species in the wild. And for those that are highly social, uh, some previous research also finds that they have more diverse markings and coloration on their face. So all different kinds of patterns of hair um, that help uh, theoretically to exaggerate their intention or an expression that they might be making with their face. So if they have a really colorful eyebrow, for example, it's gonna show if their eyes are, it's gonna make their eye rays seem all the more exaggerated, right? or if there's something important about when they puff their cheeks out, if they have colorful cheeks, that's gonna make that more obvious. Um, so we found that this happened in super social species, but also among those social species, the ones with the planar faces, so that if they didn't have as much marking, they were more what we say, behaviorally expressive. So they almost had to work harder to make those muscle movements in their faces to convey their intent or, or emotion, if you want to call it that. So this is in, in, in primates. So I'm interested right now in seeing if because dogs are, are so well adapted to, to the human social realm, if they follow a similar pattern. And it's really kind of a cool thing to be able to study because we know very distinctly from a genetic perspective, what is causing their faces to have certain markings when it comes to breed differences, right? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So I can look at both within and between breeds if like, you know, oh, does this dog, because it has a patch on its eye or eyebrows or kind of um, a V-shape around it or a mask. Oh, so you look at the, the movement of the markings, if there's no sclera, you can see and that helps you? 
So, so no, it's actually combining, it's taking two sides of things, right? So I'll have a, a picture or an image of the dog's face and I can mark out a map that says, okay, here's where it's colored this way. Here's where there's a marking here, where there's lots of different things going on with the hair patterns. And then I'm gonna ask it, the dog to, um, or I'll, I'll stand in front of the dog and, or have the owner stand in front of the dog and record them with a video responding to the owner speaking to them. So watching how they move their face just in being you know, normally expressive. And then compare those expressions to the visual and compare those with planar versus marked faces to see if there are any patterns like the ones that we see in primates. Well, what do you mean? What patterns do you see in primates? Why would the um, why would the markings have anything to do with their expressions except for the observer to say, oh, okay, when this patch on them moves, since I can't see their eye, that means that they're mad or excited. Yeah, exactly. It's just, um, it's an adaptation that happened within, again, within the social species like ourselves, like humans are. Um, and we are very plain faced, right? So we don't have lots of colors or, or patterns or marks on our faces at all. Um, and we are very expressive in terms of the way our, mus our facial muscles move. Um, so it'll be in our facial expressions, behaviorally muscular, like from a muscular perspective are, are super exaggerated and that's universal. Um, so, do we not, you know, do humans not need the, the added advantage of markings and variation? Because in addition to those expressive muscles, we also have language to help us. And if so, what pattern are the dogs following is kind of what I'm getting at, right? So where does the social factor influence more and where does the fact that they've domesticated alongside humans maybe influence more how they're behaving? Well, what, um, I don't know, what patterns have you seen so far? What, what interesting things jump out at you? Well, I'm, I'm just in the beginnings of data collection um, that got a little bit screwed by uh, COVID, as has the rest of life and the world. Um, so I was supposed to be collecting in-person data this summer from dogs. Um, that didn't get to happen. And so what I'm working on now is a protocol to hopefully have people upload videos of their dogs so that I can analyze them. So it'll be almost like a mm. science project. Well, what about your dog? Can you do, uh, I don't know, will they say, oh, it's, <laughs> it's yeah. a conflict of interest or can you, you know, do you think you can use your dog? I actually, a, a lot of my inspiration comes from my, my current dog. He's young. He's, he's just about six months. And so I haven't, I'm, I'm working on basic training with him at this point. Um, but my previous dog who um, was with me for about 10 years, um, a lot of my interest in the field came from watching him and, and his expressions. And I definitely recruited him for, for, for both official and unofficial studies that were all ethical, I promise. Um, but, you know, that's one subject, right? So I still need to be able to compare uh, to a whole group. And that's a challenge in, in animal um, behavior research kind of across the board is 
finding enough study subjects, right? So I'm kind of lucky because there are lots of dogs around us, um, but recruiting them, getting a standardized procedure, getting people to show up because, you know, the dog's not going to say, oh, I think I'll go participate in a study today. <laughs> um, you know, you need to encourage the, the, the dog caretakers and owners to, to want to get involved. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of hard to recruit subjects, but not quite as hard as, as tracking yeah. chimpanzees, I would say. So I have a little, <laughs> little bit of have you, have you, um Have you read any studies of chimpanzees interacting with dogs or other primates? Like, do they successfully interact with them? And are there any surprises there? Do you know of any studies like that? I don't know of any studies because they typically don't share in the wild. They typically don't share the same niche, right? Um, so there's actually a large percentage of dog, most dog, most domesticated dogs, and I'm not talking about, you know, African wild dogs are a species, a separate species of dogs. Then there are street dogs, which were domesticated, but have kind of gone back to, you know, more of a, a pack structure, like, or a loose living, not necessarily in someone's home. So about 80% of the dogs, domesticated dogs in the world are actually street dogs but they're not going to be coming into contact with chimpanzees because they don't share the same environment. If we're talking about something like a captive situation, like you know, on a farm or at a zoo or some kind of conservation center, um, there are certainly uh, anecdotes about interspecies relationships. You know, Coco, um, the, the gorilla was really famous for having a pet kitten that she loved. Um, so there are uh, I remember, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there are definitely instances of, of interspecies relationships, but they're not going to happen in the wild in a way that they could be studied. Well, what about with, uh, with your dog? Like, how much of the communication do you feel like you understand? And what parts do you not understand? Are you, are you analyzing it on your own? What have you figured out? Yeah. Um, so one of the things I'm interested in is... Um, when dogs feel the need to vocalize versus not, um, and this isn't, I'm, this isn't a formal project that I'm doing. <laughs> it's kind of a, to use a really bad pun, a pet project. Um, and just kind of, a, a lot of our studies are really about observation, right? So observing at what point, you know, when my dog goes to sit down and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm training him right now to sit and wait before I put his bowl in front of him. Um, if for no other reason than to get him used to, again, learning and being trainable. Um, you know, at what point in that waiting period does his inhibitory control or, his, you know, what's keeping him from just lunging and jumping on the bowl, at what point does that build to where he feels the need to vocalize, to whine or whimper or maybe bark, as opposed to just looking at me or, you know, gesturing with his nose. Um, so that's something that <laughs> is interesting to, to see how time plays into um, the chosen behavior. Or then of course there's circumstance, right? Because, you know, if a dog hears a doorbell, they're likely, they've likely gotten um, used to running toward the door and, and sounding an alarm. And that's, I know. I know. <laughs> that's something that's probably much more um, 
kind of coded into their behavior, right? The, the alarm, alarm sound. So you would, you would likely have to train that out of a dog as opposed to they're not necessarily just going to look at you and say, hey, did you hear did, gesture with their eyes rather did you did, did you hear that <laughs> you know like they're kind of it's kind of a, an innate response for them well i've noticed they know when they can't see something or they can't influence something by sight then then they use sound like sure. you know or touch i mean like you know my dog sometimes they'll they'll put their paw on me they want to get my attention or if they won't look if i don't look at them then they'll make a noise or yeah you know if, if they're looking like my one dog when he wants a treat I, I try to sometimes I try to avoid eye contact with him because he constantly <laughs> bugs me for food. And if I make eye contact, he goes, oh, oh. Exactly. you know, and it, they, they know, they know when to use vocalizations, I think, to, you know, when other stuff won't work, you know. My, um, my previous dog, Remy, you know, when it was coming toward the end of the workday and I was still sitting typing away at my computer, uh, he would come over and he had figured out that if he used his nose to unhook, I have a Mac and so it's a magnetic, um, uh, you know, plug, that he could unhook the plug and it would get my attention. <laughs> so That's funny. He was like, it was, you know, he was telling me it's, it's time to be done work now. Um, and that is something that I think in this day and age is really important in terms of the way we ha we have to communicate. We have to pay attention to dogs to communicate with them. And that's something that traditionally we had to do with each other as well. And a lot of our, so our learning is what we call social learning. It's dependent on copying or mimicking or imitating what we see others do. Um, but with technology and screens, and again, especially now, lack of contact with each other, um, I think it's really important that we maintain ways to have physical interaction and to read expressions because it's a skill that's really crucial to our neural, neural development and to our social understanding of each other and of the world. Yeah, well, I would think it would be good to study how dogs interact with each other when people aren't around. And then how dogs interact with people like you know the way i understand the way they interact with me but i don't understand nearly as much the way they interact with each other like you know one will be on the couch maybe with a ball and the other one will come close and there's like this split second where they're either welcoming the other one onto the couch or they're not yeah and I, I can see their body tenses or they look at each other in a certain way but they're reading things faster and i know i'm missing something so like have you watched footage of dogs interacting with each other when no one's around and how is it different from when people are around like you know what, what's going on that we don't know we don't see yeah I mean I have done that um as a as, as someone who um you know I'm not a professional dog trainer um but who's worked with a lot of dogs as as a hobby I would say and have done like agility and that sort of thing um and out of interest it's not within the realm of my research interest at the moment um however i will say that one of the things i think people are just starting to give dogs credit for is that they're individuals right traditionally in the field of animal behavior we we have lumped animals together as one like this is how x animal behaves Right. And, and that even included dogs. Um, but it's really not the case. Just like people, um, they have things that, that may irk them or bother them. They have things that they respond um, more frantically to or aggressively to or less so 
they have things that scare them, things that don't, and that that it, it, that's all a combination of factors um, within the individual dog. So while they may enjoy the company of one dog, another one might be getting on their nerves, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just like some people you get along really well with others you don't cooperate super well with. But what I think is cool is that, you know, dogs will fight, they will get aggressive. But rarely is it when we're talking about domesticated dogs, you know, even those, those who live in your home, rarely is a dog fight intended to be lethal. Um, so that, that heightened aggression has really reduced in their species compared to other wild canids. Um, and so a lot of the play that they do, even when it's rough play, is, is to help learn, especially in young dogs, it's to help learn, you know, how to interact with a variety of different personality types safely. Um, one thing I think that is a misconception that people have about dogs is that they're pack animals, right? You hear this all the time. They're like, oh, well, you have to dominate them. They're a member of your pack, this, that, and the other. Well, really, you know, again, domesticated dogs in our households are so far removed from the common ancestor that they had with the wolves that exist today and their lives and their environments and their needs are so different that they're really not the pack animals that they descended from. They are much more, as we're talking about, much more attuned to, I would argue, even humans' um, behaviors than each other's in some ways. Dogs cooperate. There are some studies, we have some, um, some solid research that shows dogs cooperate on tasks with humans better than they do with other dogs, actually, as compared to wolves. There's a really... Oh. Yeah, yeah, there's a really famous, um, not really famous, but there's a common task, it's called a rope pulling task that um, we do with a lot of a lot of different species to see if they'll cooperate with each other and essentially um, there's a treat or a reward or something that can be gleaned, but only if two individuals work together by pulling two opposite ends of the rope so that the, the reward comes toward them at the same time. And I think that um, just like people, dogs have an instinctual side and then a cognitive side. Mm -hmm. And I think in dogs, the instinctual side is much stronger and more pervasive and in people less so. And I think when dogs relate to people, they can be more in like the cognitive side. And when they relate to each other, it's much more instinctual. It's just my armchair philosophy here, <laughs> but that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably something to that, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all animals. Um, and humans, we have, because it's been adaptive for us, our, when I say aggression, I just mean, um, I mean, you know, if you put a bunch of, of human primates, this is our, our age-old example, um, if you put a bunch of human primates on, a, on an airplane together, we can all sit there relatively calmly and not kill each other. Um, but if you did that with a bunch of chimpanzees from all over the world, you know, from all different um, troops, that would not be the case. Um, so we've, we've had over time in our evolution, a significant reduction in aggression that has benefited us enough for the way we interact with each other, um, that we're more what we call actually domesticated. Humans are, are in a lot of ways domesticated, um, the same 
I won't say the same, but in some in similar ways that dogs are, even down to um, a physiological and genetic level. I mean, we have there are features of um, of domesticated animals, skeletons, and brain sizes that are are similar across the board. Whether you're talking about you know cows from or, or pigs from boars or, you know, dogs from wolves or people from humans from, you know, a primate ancestor. Um, and so certainly we've cognitively been able to um, control some of our baser instincts a lot better and, and a lot more efficiently and regularly than many other animals. Um, they're still there, I would say. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I don't know, is there, when you look at research surrounding dogs, like uh, in addition to your own, what what really interests you or mystifies you or like surprises you that, that you've learned that maybe the common person doesn't know? Um, well, you know, I can't say I'm surprised to learn that dogs, like many animals, have greater cognitive abilities than we've previously given them credit. But it is really cool to be seeing the advances in the field where we're now able to actually detect that you know, scientifically, um, we, we can do awake MRIs on, on dogs. Now we've been, we've been able to train them to do MRIs so we can actually see functional brain differences, which is really amazing. Um, because again, I think we've been limited by our methods for a long time, right? Um, we don't really know what, what dogs or other animals are capable of because we can't get inside their experience um, in the same way we might be able to do with, with human uh, subjects. Um, but, you know, I think that's something we need to just keep keep trying for. And it's something I, that actually comes back to. I'm a, I'm, I, was a, I am a science writer and a writer by trade before I got back into the research world. Um, and I remember one mentor a long time ago said that to be successful, you need to be able to write yourself into the experience of any anything, any other animal, any other object, any other person. Um, and I think that goes the same for scientific research. We need to be able to think about how we can get into the experience of these other individuals because they are individuals. Um, yeah, I've asked people what it's like to smell like a dog or what it's like, you know, smell as a dog smells or um, mm -hmm. experience as a dog experiences. And everyone's like, oh, I don't know. They either make a joke or they're like, you can't know but they don't really try to give like an honest thought of, okay, let's really try to imagine this. Like what clues can we pick up and how could we imagine ourselves in that experience? You know? Right. And I mean, dogs have a completely different, you know, they have a special organ called the vomeral nasal organ that changes the way they smell. They have a, a much higher number of olfactory detectors in their brain. So, so um, the special neurons that are going to be signaling what a size is, means. Um, so it's, it's definitely like, it's, it's putting yourself on kind of on overload in one sense in that way um, is, is that one example or from, from the, you know, the example I'd like to give from the, the language perspective, right? It's, you know, you may have, did you ever study abroad or, or do a, a, you know, a semester abroad anywhere? I haven't, you know, done a semester abroad and I right. regret it, but I have traveled a bunch, but yeah, what were you going to ask? 
So I was just going to say, you know, you're going somewhere and you're immersed in this place where you don't speak the language and, and or you likely don't speak the language. In many cases, <laughs> you're not speaking the language. The people you're, you're living with and depending on also don't speak the language. But from a dog's perspective, it would be like, you know, if you tried really, really hard and, and started learning it and were working on it, but they weren't reciprocating, right? So that's kind of, I feel like, how a dog must feel almost every day <laughs> when we're just like not getting it from their perspective. Mm. Um, again, this is just my own, you know, philosophizing, but uh, I noticed that, um, you know, how like people will be auditory, visual, or kinesthetic. And people have like pers certain personality types, you know, like type A personality, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It seems like with dogs, they're, they're similar. Like some, their whole life is just about food constantly. You know, there's always one that seems like that. Like there's nothing else in their life except food. And then some of them are, um, I don't know, they're, you know, some people will say like, oh, my dog is stupid or, oh, my dog is really smart. So I wonder if there's these like um, particular types of dogs that, uh, again, some that are very, smell driven some that are very like prey prey driven you know they're good hunters and definitely absolutely i mean it's a combination of things again like there are individuals i think i hesitate from to to say you know <laughs> a dog is smarter or, or or less smart than another it's, it's about where are they where do their cognitive abilities shine <laughs> or not um and also how is their environment enriched to facilitate learning so lots of dogs that are hungry or or just interested in food all of the time are so because they're bored they're not being mentally stimulated and the most exciting thing about their day is food and so you know, as researchers, we can learn how to create more enriched environments for dogs and for other animals too. It's it's a it's a huge field within conservation is for animals that are kept in captivity. How do we enrich their environments so that they can function to the best of, of their ability? Um, but certainly, when it comes to dogs, there have been um, different stages of domesticity have specifically bred them for tasks. Right. So some dogs have been bred at points to be really good at smelling or really good visual hunters or really good at herding. And there are genetic influences to that that are going to be passed on. Again, that's not to say, and it's the same with human, that it will definitely be passed on. Um, there will be a higher propensity for it to come out given the circumstances that that animal is in. Um, so if you have, you know, if same example, both of your parents were super athletic, you're going to get some of that, you know, athletic prowess in your genes, but if you don't ever exercise it or try to, or, you know, aim to be a track star, you're not going to be, and you may put your attention elsewhere and develop some other, um, trait or, or characteristic. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess, um, well, I wonder if there's, again, there's a set of dog abilities. And um, if there's a way for people to quickly assess their dog when they get one, you know, if they get it as a puppy, let's say, or just a new dog, mm -hmm. you know, new to them, and then, you know, work with the dog differently. If some dogs really, you know, not just, and beyond breed, within yeah. breed, I'm sure there's, there's differences, you know? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Um, Evan McLean is doing some really interesting work 
on on um, development um, and how in, in different environments and, and what they may be doing in terms of responding to different human cues and that sort of thing, but also um, what is happening at the interaction of, as we we're talking about, kind of um, genes and environment and, 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 and how certain behaviors are keyed up or keyed down sort of thing. But yeah, absolutely with individuals, um, there are tests that, um, people will do to see, you know, does this dog have a high prey drive? And that'll, that'll often um, be detectable early on with puppies. You know, some puppies are, as you were saying, going to be hanging out by the food bowl. Some puppies are going to be hanging out by mom. Others are going to be chasing flies. And, and that's probably a signal that that's something that interests them um, or that is stimulating for them. And we're, we're all looking for things to stimulate our brains. Right. Um, so for sure there are, there are, there are early signs and lots of those things happen. There's, there's kind of a critical period between around two to four months for dogs where they should really be exposed to as much as possible so that they don't develop fear um, because fear responses in the brain start kicking in for dogs around four, four months or so uh, on average, you know. Um, so, so lots of dogs that grow up perhaps to be afraid of, to be, to, to have noise phobias, for example, may have been exposed to something really loud and scary or something really loud paired with a scary stimulus during that critical period. Um, so that might put them at a higher risk for having a noise phobia, for example, later on in life, you know, and, and if it's combined with maybe, um, some genetic factors for anxiety that'll make it all the more. Or if, you know, the mother was stressed during, um, while the dog was developing, that's something that I think we see a lot in, in the cases of shelter dogs. There are really high stressors on the mom before the dog's even born, and that can be passed down. So one of the things... Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. So the puppies of, uh, of shelter dogs tend to be more stressed? No, I wouldn't. I, I don't have any data to say that, like, exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, it could be, but okay. Maybe. It, it's, a, it's definitely a trend that um, can happen. And so one of the things that um, we're looking for are ways to reduce stressors on dogs in shelters because that makes them more adaptable at the end of the day, right? So certainly if you can figure out how fear is operating, for example, um, within a dog's environment, and you can, you can remove those fearful stimuli, that dog's going to be more receptive to communication and, and listening to training and that sort of thing. Um, and then ultimately have a higher likelihood of, of, of making it into a home or being rehomed. Um, so those are some of the kind of practical applications of finding out more about dog behavior, because unfortunately there are so many, so many unwanted animals in the United States and across the world. And a lot of them end up out of homes because of perceived aggression or people not understanding what the signs are um, or what is actually going on. And so um, if we can reduce those instances, it's a better outcome for everyone. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, Courtney, I know that you're at the beginning of your research, but how can people find out more about the work that you're doing? 
Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I so I, my lab is the primate genomics lab at George Washington University. I'm within the Center for the Advanced Study of Human Paleobiology. It's a mouthful, um, but we're an interdisciplinary center that studies um, human human evolution essentially. But I work with some really amazing collaborators. Um, Aaron Hecht up at Harvard has the canine brain lab and there are some really cool studies i talked about citizen science participation studies there are some really cool studies that um, people can go log on to participate in with their dogs um there's a howling study to see if if dogs match pitch <laughs> um and yeah there's there's a lot of other great resources um i'm i'm based in dc i know there are some folks at university of Maryland also doing some behavior work. Um, so just Google dog behavior studies participate and lots of us are trying to find <laughs> willing people to upload videos so we can continue our work during during the, the COVID crisis here. Okay, well, very cool. Well, Courtney, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been very, very interesting. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.